0: Um, Before we get started uh, this afternoon, or this morning still, let's, uh, let's just bow our heads for a quick word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, whenever we gather together and reason together around your word, we know that truth is here, and we know that your spirit, the spirit of truth, can teach us. And so, Lord, we open our hearts and we open our minds to your truth and ask that you would infuse that into our being, that it would change and transform us into who you want us to be. For if we look throughout the ages, mankind has struggled. And even those of your children within the church have struggled with many of these issues. And that's why we need your spirit to be the one guiding us. So teach us today, and we will glorify your name as we pray this through your Son Jesus. Amen. These four itty words. Thank you. Um, these four itty words have caused a great amount of stress and struggle and strife within mankind within families, within the church, within Christendom as a whole. Why do you think there's been such a power struggle, particularly within the church, over these five terms? Sorry, four. I apologize. I can't count. Four. Over these four terms. There's a fifth one later that I'll bring up. Why do you think there's been such a power struggle between these four terms? Misunderstanding, so identifying identity and, or sorry, uniformity and unity as the same thing. So misunderstanding the definitions of what each of them are. Excellent. We have a different sense of balance between these four that is pretty now. Good. A difference of balance, and, I, and that's very true. Certain people assign certain value or priority to one versus the other, more, one more than the other. And so it's that balance between someone's. You know, tendencies t- is more towards uniformity, someone else's is towards diversity, and so you have this clash. Good. Danny. Good. There's a natural tension between those two. Many of them, in some cases, maybe diametrically opposed. Good. Also influenced by our cultures that we grew up in. Good. Uh, certain cultures will tend to define things certainly a, a certain way and put an emphasis on certain things. And when I guess why do we why do we um, tend to gravitate towards one and then kind of stay there? It's comfortable. It's comfortable, right? It's it, once you get there, it's like, man, I'm I'm good. Don't don't move me. And plus, I'm right. And plus, I'm right. Absolutely and, and excellent. So once we th- these terms create a sense of comfort, security, safety. Um, and these, so feelings of peace and ease become associated with this and when we feel that we think we're right and we don't want to move right? so uh, all of those things are, are important um, but as well when you look at these terms if we, as we begin to look at them you're going to see that each of these terms has a spectrum there's extremes to either of them or to any of them um, and so we're going to see that as well you're going to see that some of these terms like to work hand-in-hand hand with each other or in pairs, um, and so that creates a little bit more of an a issue too. Um, so before we get into things, does anybody know what this ‑‑ do we have any English teachers or profs here, does anybody know what the suffix I-T-Y is, what it means? I don't think you will because there's no definition for it. I-T-Y, according to Mark Marga, means is that you? So as we begin to go through this and we talk about each one of these terms, the question is going to come back, is that you? Is that you? Is that you? Is that me? So ITY, is that you? Um, Just a little word of warning. (laughs) Um, Some of the information contained in here um, will challenge you. Um, because, again, it's, it maybe goes back to that point, we've developed an improper understanding of what that term is. And so now when we're confronted with what that is and what the symptoms or signs of that is, and we ask the question to ourselves, is that you? Uh, it's going to put us in a real uncomfortable spot that we're going to need to do something about. So um, just kind of be conscious of that. And when I say danger signs, and, and you're going to see that with every... Term we go through danger signs. It doesn't mean that it's a bad thing because there's components of of each of these terms that are found throughout life, throughout society, throughout the church, throughout the Bible. So in and of themselves, they're not necessarily a danger point. But it's on that spectrum, depending where we go on that spectrum, that it can become danger. And that's what I want to focus on because we're fallible and, and we're fallen. We can take these concepts and misinterpret them, misunderstand them, and therefore misapply them. And that's what I want to talk about, is the misapplication pieces of that, so that as we begin to know what some of these danger signs are, it's going to help us identify them in our own lives first, and then begin to apply that within our families, our churches, and even into our culture. So let's go to the first one, uniformity. Uniformity what do these pictures convey to you about uniformity? Sameness? Structure? Repetition? repetition, Pattern? Pattern. When you look at a zebra, you're always going to see stripes, right? You're not going to see spots. (laughs) Okay, good. Exactly. There is an expectation to it. Very good. Excellent. Which, in many ways, creates that sense of ease or comfort because I I, I know what to expect. I don't have to think. I just step in and, oh, that's a zebra. Good. Excellent. Um, So how would we define uniformity? A lot of those things we've talked about, maybe sameness or or, um, pattern and, and design, resemblance of itself or there's consistency across it, so you know what to expect. It follows a pattern, a rule, a similitude. Now in each of these pictures, are they exactly the same? None of them. None None of them. There's what? Diversity in them, but there's a general uniformity. There's a general sameness. The buildings may all look the same, but oh, one there only has one skylight. Um, Oh, that one has a pool, that one has a fet. There's differences. Even zebras. The patterns are not the same. There's not two zebras that have two similar stripe patterns, just like our fingerprints. So within the uniformity is allowance for diversity or uniqueness. Um, But in general, it follows the same pattern or rule. And we'll get to understand why that's important shortly. Um, But it doesn't refer to the specifics, only the generalities. What are some examples that you can think of in Scripture um, of uniformity? And, and maybe just for sake of time, um, I'll just fly through a few of them. The Ten Commandments are general rules of uniformity. They're general standards for people to follow. Now, when we look at the extreme of that, what did the Pharisees do? They created 600-some-odd specifics of how to live instead of living under the ten uniformity rules that, that God gave as standards for us to follow. Um, we can think of, of the Apostle Peter, um, who, who even when he was confronted at the trial or, or during the trial of Christ, they identified him by certain uniformity that he, conf- that, that he had related to the Jewish people. His speech betrayed him, it says, or g- gave away who he was. Um, their dress typically uh, would give away what they are, just general. Um, dress. We can read scriptures like uh, Philippians 2, which talks about being like-minded one with another, or Philippians 3, 15, which talks about walking by the same rule and minding the same things one with another. Um, and then there's those that will, will take the verbiage of 2 Thessalonians two fifteen, which says hold fast the traditions which ye have been taught and want to apply that in a very specific way. But in the context of what that is, it's not referring to our traditions and customs and order of the church, but the teachings and the doctrine that we are to be uniform in and mind the same things. So there's many aspects of of uniformity that we can see out there. So what are some of the danger signs in uniformity? When we're getting a little too far to the extreme, when we don't allow for that variation and uniqueness of the individual. So for example, parents maybe would treat their children exactly the same. So if Tommy got a truck, then Sally got a truck too, because we treat the children all the same way. If if George wants to take music lessons, then so is Sally going to take music lessons. And they're going to take the same instrument, so we don't have to buy two of them or whatever. It, it, creates this general uniformity across the board that doesn't allow for the uniqueness of of the individual. Um, Again, we could take that in a a church perspective and churches make a ruling or a uniform code. So we all have to wear white tops and dark bottoms. Or we all have to wear this same style of babushka or head covering or whatever we want to call. Um, And so we make these uniform things that apply to everything without any Allowance for for variation and uniqueness. And I think this is probably the key. When we don't know or we don't have a God-glorifying, gospel-driven reason for the uniformity. If the purpose for our uniformity is not because God said you shall do this, or this is a way to reach the lost, then I think we have to start questioning why we're doing it. And is it really a good thing? Um, When we overemphasize uniformity to man-made traditions or rules over the purposes or mission of the creator. So for example, maybe somebody walks into our circles here that just happened to be walking through the community. And this girl walks in and she's tattooed everywhere, has piercings everywhere and is wearing the shortest skirt that you can ever imagine and walks up here and sits in to join our circles not fitting the general uniformity of what we have here what is our reaction what is our first gut reaction if our first reaction is mm, I'll sit beside her and cover her with my big skirt <laughs> um our, our we would. We would lose the consultation of the message and focus solely on that and, and that would be the, we'd totally miss everything because it doesn't fit that uniformity. And so it's it's again it's just a caution for us to think about that. Um if our mission, the mission of the church, is to make disciples of all nations, going back to even the one before. The, yes. Absolutely. for the message, but I would be glorifying God to the message, Right, it, And that's, that, that's paying but, but again, you wouldn't pay the whole time you wouldn't be for the next 50 minutes, you wouldn't be saying "Glory to God." You would notice it, glorify God and then continue on. Whereas other people that really struggle with uniformity or, or tend towards that would focus for the next 50 minutes on that and totally missed the message. And I think that was Brother Dushko's point, and both, but both points are equally valid. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, when uniformity becomes a gauge to measure or to judge others, right, and, and oftentimes it's used to measure the spirituality of someone. They don't you know, conform to my standard of uniformity, so therefore they're not as holy as I am. And, and that's a danger sign that, that we have put the emphasis on uniformity versus other things, and, and we're going to get to that. Um, When we create uniformity to keep things in control, because that's what it does, right? It helps us. If we can create this uniformity, then there's control there because people know what to expect and they just know you just follow this path, because that's what we've created. We've created a path that you need to follow. And again, if it's just simply to keep control, and as soon as things get out of control, then we get upset because our pattern isn't being followed. Someone's not walking in the same path that we've set before them. Even though it's, we don't know why we're doing it, we're just doing it. It's the way we walked all the time. This is the way the cows walk, so we're just walking the same path. Where's it taking you? I don't know. So, again, it's that component of if we are getting upset because some standard of uniformity is not followed or is, is being changed on us, and we're getting emotionally upset over it, we've stepped over the line of... of of danger in what is uniformity. So the question is, ITY, is that you? Is that us? What about conformity? What do these pictures tell you about conformity? The person on the right, the experimenter or the authority, would actually um, indicate if the person gave a wrong answer, they were supposed to give them a shock. The next answer, if they answered wrong, they were supposed to give them a higher dose of shock. And it was to the point on this shock generator to the point of lethal. And they would continue as the wrong answers continued. And at some point in time, they may say, you know what, I'm uncomfortable because this is now getting into the danger zone. They couldn't see this other person. They were behind a wall or in another room, so they couldn't tell. All they heard was the person's reaction to getting shocked, which obviously they weren't being shocked. But, um, <laughs> so, but they heard it. And it was, it was like yelling and screaming, and I, I have a bad heart. And, but the, the experimenter... The authority figure said, The answer's wrong, (coughs) shock them at this level, and next question. And 60% of the people that went through there, the, the participants, shocked to the highest level when authorized to do so or told to do so by the authority figure. They conformed in spite of going against what they believed. They would never do that, but under that scenario, they would do that. So that's the experiment. It's called the Milgram experiment. And there's actually a a movie that was just released last year on um, a very similar one called the Stanton Prison Experiment or something like that. Um, Parallel type of thing. And what the guards would do, these just all students, but what these students did to their fellow students was horrific because they were put into a position of authority and therefore drove conformity. Um, What about some of the other pictures? What do they? What do they tell you about what conformity means? What is the definition of conformity? Power, Power good, and that's part of the definition. Blind obedience, Blind obedience okay. Imposing Following peer, peer pressure. pressure, imposing, imposing uniformity, imposing uniformity. Excellent, very good. And all of those things are all part of the definition of what conformity is. It's pressure even peer pressure, whether that's implied, whether it's perceived, or whether it's real, it's still pressure to uniformity, to comply or consent in actions, behaviors with certain standards or norms. That's what conformity is. And that's why it goes hand in hand. It's pressure to be, to be uniform. Um, and again, uh, some of these are not necessarily... Um, are not necessarily bad. We see them in in aspects of, most religions have aspects of conformity. Most ideologies, all ideologies, particularly extreme like Hitler, has huge conformity into it and has a lot of pressure that goes along with it. Um, If we think into the scriptures, Nebuchadnezzar put in the aspect of conformity when he made all people bow down to him. And if you didn't, the pressure was, you're going to die. We can see in in the early church between the Jews that became Christians and the Gentiles that became Christians, there was a strong pressure to make the Gentile believers conform to circumcision and to all the law that was written in in the Mosaic law, just like the Jews were doing. And then we have the aspect of of the warning of that in, in Romans 12, don't be conformed to the world which has a lot of pressures to try to make you conform, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Um, and then we have Peter and Paul's power struggle that came in the Church of Galatia when Peter wanted to, or when the Jews came, he conformed to the Jews and distanced himself from the, from the um, Gentile believers. And Paul had to confront him to his face to say, how can you being a Christian, do this and separate yourselves, and so much so that even Barnabas was carried away with him uh, to do that. So there's, there's various aspects of, of Scripture um, that we can see this in. So what are some of the danger signs that, that point that we're, we're going into the extreme of, of conformity? When we apply, imply, or feel pressure to bring compliance to something. It's one thing to state this is how we tend to do it as a family or this is how we do it as a church, but when somebody doesn't want to comply to that and we begin to draw some extreme force upon that, um, again, there's components of that that are are good. God is conforming us to the image of Christ, he says. Does that mean he's coming along with a big stick and beating us over the head? Sometimes, (laughs) depending how far thick-headed you are, but um, he typically doesn't. Um, But he does put pressure on to get us to conform. It's what that pressure is and why the pressure is being applied is the importance of it. If it's being applied because we need to be uniform, that's the wrong reasoning. As it applies to our life in the world, when we comply to the societal norms... Without discernment, we've gone a little bit overboard in our conformity to the world. And that could be examples of, I need to take this promotion because this is going to get me a bigger house, a better car, a better life, whatever it is. I need to get involved in certain activities because, well, all the management at work play golf, and, and I'm asked by the CEO, I've got to go play golf, so, well, therefore, I have to get involved in it. Or, well, everybody at work is talking about this latest TV show, so I need to catch up on things so I can engage in the conversation, so I can share the gospel. And so I'm going to conform to that. Um, It's pressure in that way to to do that. And again, it can be applied or implied or or real. When we don't know or have a God-glorifying, God-given or God-driven reason for the conformity, and we can take the example of the picture on the previous page. The, the pattern for prayer that the Muslims have is conformity. And it's driven with a lot of force. Is it God-glorifying or God-driven? Maybe to a certain degree, some may say it, it may have components of that. Um, or maybe this pressure that we feel that we have to, in order to pray publicly in church, we have to pray a certain way we have to use these and vows and couldest and wouldest and shouldest and we can't even talk properly because we don't know what we're saying or we have to use certain terms and, and you know use the, the term Lord 30 times in our prayer because that's how everybody does it. Th- that's pressure to conform and it's not necessarily gospel driven or God driven either and it's not God glorifying. Um, we can go as far as, and again I'm trying to bring practical examples that we can identify with. It could be simply a conformity of, of no facial hair, um, as the Sisters Church does. It's across the board, no facial hair. We don't have a reason for it, it's just no facial hair. And we can try to tie in some scriptural references, but it's, it's really a stretch. Or if we take the Mennonites, well, you can't have you know, buttons and zippers because that's, that's conforming to the world. But it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with God-glorifying or gospel-driven at all. We just, we're just making this and everybody has to conform. And we're going to put pressure on those that don't conform because you have to conform to the uniformity. And if that doesn't work, then we'll bring in the authority figure to tell you to shock, to get shocked so that you will follow um, instead of following what the, what the Spirit is emphasizing. And oftentimes, conformity can hinder th- the Spirit and our obedience to the word. Um, the, the two kind of being tied together. But, but, and we can see this, those of you who come from European backgrounds, over the last decade we've seen a lot of this reaction to nonconformity. So believers getting together and studying the Bible or holding prayer groups outside of the sanctioned church area because they're not allowed there, there's a strong pressure against them not to do that which is not God glorifying and definitely not gospel driven but is done for conformity's sake and then when we like the other one when we get upset because our 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 non-conformity you know or we're trying to resist it and prevent it and it's not working and so we have to you know we try bigger pressure and when that doesn't work then we're really upset because no one's following what we want them to do And they're still changing, or they're still not conforming. And then when harsh measures are put in place against that non-conformity, and again, going back to the European churches, it's reality in our circles, folks. Members that are excommunicated because they study the Bible together and have prayer groups together. Really? Really? That's what God asks us to do? That's conformity for conformity's sake and none other. And that's gone way overboard. Is that you? Is that us? Is that me? What about diversity? I think in, the, in our culture and time today, this is like the big buzzword. Diversity. It's all about diversity. Um, and you can see the extremes in this from priests that advocate rights to embrace all cultures and religions and and this diversity and let's have this huge melting pot to people of various colors, um, genders, disabilities, whatever the case may be, which is nothing wrong with that. That's great. It's it's showing the diversity of humankind to when we get together, well, what do you think? Well, how about if we try this? Well, another way to look at it and just getting a diverse thought in our discussion. And we can see it within biology and, and um, all aspects of creation, too, this, this aspects of diversity. So what is, what is diversity? What does it mean? What are some definitions of diversity? Different? different. Just difference? Uniqueness? Uniqueness. Good. Could be, Could be contradictory, yep, because they may be that different that, that they are contradictory. Sure. Being unique enough and yet still belonging to that same group. Being unique enough and still belonging to the group. Excellent. Very good. From a definition standpoint, it's literally just like we talked about, variation, difference, unlikeness or distinctness. But I think when we go and look at how this diversity is being applied in the world today, I think it's gone a step further. It's gone past the point of things being different to the point of you need to accept, you need to respect, but let's keep going. You need to embrace that, and oh, you need to celebrate that difference too. And then now include it as equal to your own uniqueness. And this is where, again, I think it's, it's stepped over the line as far as um, what those look like. And, and we can see that again. as strange as it is diversity and conformity sometimes go hand in hand because if you don't conform to my diversity then you're the one who's intolerant or you're a bigot or you're whatever else it is Um, and again we can see these aspects coming into every aspect of society there isn't a television show today that doesn't include homosexuality or the gender issue as part of its show at some point in time in its seasons of running will include that. Even remakes now of the original will change the original to fit that in. The most recent one being Star Trek. And I'm not a Trekkie. But where they are recreating Star Trek with a gay character because the original character in the original show is gay, and so therefore let's recreate it so that he is gay in the show in spite of the fact that that actor says, that's wrong, you shouldn't do that. Just the the world is is gone spun around in in pretty crazy ways when it comes to to the inclusion of diversity in in face of really nonsensical things. But again, diversity in and of itself is not a bad thing by definition. We see it throughout the Bible. The, the, The best example is the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about that, right? Where it says the eye is not the ear and the foot is not the hand and how can the one say to the other, I don't need you or you're not as good as I am. But all of them, they're members in particular, but yet one body. Or we can talk about in, in Colossians 3, it talks about that there's neither bond nor free, male nor female, Jew nor Greek, barbarian or Scythian. None of those things, but all are in Christ. And one in all. Um, even if we look at, and I love the genealogies of Christ. I love reading those things and looking at who's included in there. The diversity included in the genealogy of Jesus Christ is incredible. You know, we, we when we would talk about, uh, about a, a bloodline of, of a dog and, or a horse or whatever that that we want to get this purebred. I mean, it's it's made so it's like got the best. Of, of everything included in there so that when we get something, we're paying top dollar because this is a purebred. Well, Christ was the only true purebred, so to speak, of, of God. And yet his genealogy is nothing but that. It's, it's everything but that. I and mean, we have a prostitute. We have a Moabite woman. We have kings that were horrifically sinful and God destroyed included in the lineage of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's awesome. The only thing that I like to, add to that, Mark, is the it's Jesus whose genealogy is diverse. Christ has one single genealogy. <laughs> As the Son of God. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but again, in the human terminology of the genealogy of Christ, God chose, specifically chose, a prostitute. A Moabite woman, a wicked king, all of these things, all throughout history, to bring about his son. He could have done it any way he wanted to, and that's what he chose to do to bring diversity into that. And I think that's fantastic. But there are some danger signs with diversity. When we are pressured, or even if we do aren't, and we, we treat all views or beliefs as equal, valid, and true, all beliefs are not equal or valid, or true. There are some that are not true. There are some that are not equal to others. But when we look at that and say, yeah, but everything is equal, your belief is just as valid as mine, even though it's not biblical, even though it's taking the Bible out of context, well, it's just as valid as mine is, and we don't address those wrong beliefs. I think a danger for us now, too, is we, we may not view things as equal, but we're pressured to. Right. So, you know, I mean, the whole, like, gender thing is one thing, but even, like, I know some provinces in Canada already are pressuring everyone to teach children that all religions are equal, and they have to be taught as equal, and we are pressured to do so, but what do we do, right? So mm-hmm. that's a it can become dangerous if we feel that we need to yield to that. Right, and that's very much the pressure yeah. is to, yeah. that we need to teach exactly what the society is teaching. And that, that, that can be a very real and present danger. When we value the diversity of the individual over the unity of the whole can bring us into a point of, of danger as well. Um, and again, we can examples from today, right? I mean, examples of, of yesteryear were, were maybe the affirmative action where that was put in for everything and no matter what, you need to include various races in there in equal portion whether they're, whether they're valid or not. Whether their standards are the same as everybody else or not, it's irrelevant. You just need to include them. Our our struggle today is that with transgendering, to to include that into the point where, for bathrooms, we have to create that. We're valuing the diversity of less than a point one percent of the entire population to the effect of of the unity of the whole. Um, it is a is one of the examples that we have today when we. Consider and include all views, ideas, beliefs without examining them and without discerning them. So, for example, we can accept or when we talk about um, the diversity of beliefs about creation and evolution, not in the schools, in churches, where we have those that believe in a young earth, in a literal six-day creation, to those that believe that God used evolution over millions of years to bring about the world and where we treat those as equal without examination or without discernment instead of getting together and talking about it and in that way coming to a uniform understanding of what scripture teaches us and what science teaches us. When we're encouraged or forced, I'll use encouraged lightly, to embrace or celebrate a diverse view or belief. And just before camp, or just at the end of the school year, um, which was about a few weeks before camp, there was an example that happened within our church to two young people, two young unconverted people, actually, um, who go to the same school. And it was near the last week of school, and there was a big celebration at the school and because it's a pride month. And so let's go out around the flagpole and let's celebrate the raising of the gay pride flag. Two of our young people in church said, I'm staying inside. That's not according to my belief. You can go out and celebrate it. You can do whatever you want. I'm going to stay inside. Want to guess what the school officials did to them? Made them conform. didn't go as far as suspension, at least that I know of. But there was a strong, a very strong presence of you need to conform, and you get out there, and you're being hateful, and you're being... Because we have to celebrate diversity as equal, but maybe even more than your view. And it's very, very... This is becoming more and more prevalent, and unfortunately, our children in public schools are facing this more and more, and it's going to get harder and harder for them. when we ignore diverse thoughts or opinions from ours. And again, this is, it doesn't necessarily need to be extreme like the one before. It can be just, hey, that person has a different viewpoint, but we're not ready to listen to a different viewpoint. If you have a different viewpoint, then it's best you just keep quiet, especially in the church, because we don't want to get into discussions or conflict and strife, so just stay quiet. And so we'll put some pressure on that to make sure that you stay quiet. And sometimes that pressure may not be from an outside, it may be from an inside feeling, man, if I say something, I'm going to get pounded on. So I'm just going to stay quiet and I'm not going to say anything. That's oh, absolutely it's coercion. Uh, absolutely. But again, as children, what, what do they have to stand on? They don't, they don't know any different. They're, they're going to feel that pressure, even if, and, and if the school authorities force them to do that. In today's society, they don't have a lot of leg to stand on, particularly if they don't have legal support. Well, the really- again, the parents can come in after the fact and, and talk with the school board, but again, the school board has a stance on it, and if you don't have a legal defense on the other side that's advocating for you, it's very difficult to do anything. Oh, absolutely. Which is yep. they understand that they need to stand and that they have the, the, the audacity to basically say no. And exactly. I don't think every kid would need to say no. No, because obviously they're not the only Christian kids yeah. in the school. Yeah. There's yeah. a lot of other Christian kids in the school or that grew up in Christian families or even maybe that consider themselves Christians but that didn't. That just said, well, again, that's the concept. I'm just not going to say anything. I, I won't, I'll go out there but I'm going to be kneeling in my heart to God. Right and, and it's like, instead of, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saying, uh, no, we're not kneeling, and no, we're not going, or no, we're going to sit down here because we don't support that. And, and that's good. We need to be instilling that in our, in our children, in ourselves, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, to stand up for the truth. Uh, excellent point, Brad. And when we don't accept that diversity in the body is a God-designed, God-glorifying, and gospel-driven thing. Um, and again, it's... We can think about that within, within our, our realm of, of missionaries within our church as a whole. Do we individually support missionaries that are from the other conference, or Christian missionaries from another denomination, or other things like that? Because while they're not from us, but are they spreading the gospel? Apostle Paul says, whether there's Christ is preaching for contention against me or preached in truth because that's what he's doing, I rejoice in that because either way, Christ is preached. Is that us? Or we don't value that diversity so much. They have to be more like us to be true Christians. They're not really, not really Christian. I'm not sure if they're Christians because they don't believe exactly like I do. Yeah. We live in a time and age that says ideas are equal, but people are not equal. There are some people that are better than others. There are heroes in society that are put up as role models and so on. But so one thing that goes along with the, you know, the ideas that ideas are the same, people are special, and you know what we believe is. Excellent. Very true. Excellent. So, unity. What is unity then? And you can see variations of what unity in some senses can mean. There's the body of Christ, which obviously is a no brainer for us. Unfortunately, you can't see much of this other one. There's a, a movie that was released in August 2015 that says human plus animal plus tree equals unity. Not the same, but equal. That's unity. That's what the world teaches is unity. To a certain degree, at least if you're a tree hugger and, and PETA and all the other stuff, that an animal is a pig, is a dog, is a human, is a whatever. They're all the same. doesn't matter. And therefore... If we kill animals, what's the difference between killing babies? We're all equal. Matter of fact, maybe a pig is more useful than a human. Many of them believe that. And then there's the aspects of unity between different faiths, different different religions. And then there's the comic book teams, which form a unit. Diverse in and of themselves, they all have different superpowers, but they are a unit and they operate as a unit together. So unity, just by definition, is just simply oneness, concord, um, agreement—something that's not divided, but yet is separate. Um, And that's uh, the the comic book heroes is is maybe a a good example of that, where it's it's they're together, they're not divided, but they're each separate individual components to it. Excellent, and they all have the same goal or the same objective that. Excellent. There's a purpose, a commonness or a purpose. When we look for, at a biblical perspective, we see a slightly different component coming out. It's, it's a unit, it's togetherness um, or oneness, agreement of a number of people. Um, but what's interesting is that how, guesses, any guesses on how many times the word unity is found in the scriptures? Just throw in a ballpark number. Five. Any other guesses? 30, 16 or 60? 60? 84. Any higher? we got 100, 105, 110. It's No, we, in Scripture, unity is only found three times. We put a lot of emphasis on it, but it's only found three times. Once in the book of Psalms, which is where our song in the Zionist harp comes, how beautiful it is that those that dwell together in unity, Psalm 133, and the other two times are found in the book of Ephesians in chapter 4. And we're going to talk about that chapter because I think it's, it's, so, it's such an important chapter. But the phrase is not just unity in Ephesians. It's two unique phrases. Unity of the Spirit and unity of the faith. And those two things are uniquely different than one another. The unity of the Spirit is that which is of a spiritual union. Obviously, it talks about, leading up to those verses, um, and we'll see, talks about that there's one body, one faith, one baptism, one calling, one God, all of this. And there's, therefore, there's unity of the Spirit that's there. Um, and this unity, because it's a unity of the Spirit, is a unity that's brought or produced by the Spirit. We can't produce it. It's nothing we can do humanly to bring about it. It's something that the Spirit has to cultivate in us and through us. Um, and it says that we are to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit. So it's something, though, that even though we don't produce it, we're supposed to work towards it. We're supposed to dive into the Spirit and, and into walking with Him so that that comes out in us. And then it talks about in Ephesians 4.11, it talks about the unity of the faith. But again, we're going to get into those. Um, in the book of Acts... We we read a different word than unity, both in the Greek and in the English, called of one accord. And in the book of Acts, 11 times that phrase one accord comes out. Um, And it's really just an entire agreement of mind. That's what the word means. Um, And when we are of one accord, as it says in the book of Acts, the last uh, verses of chapter 2, when it defines how closely they were aligned in agreement of mind, it says, the Lord added daily to the church such as should be saved. There was a huge outpouring of the Spirit because they were in agreement of mind to what Christ indicated to do. So the question is then, if we are united, technically Christ should be pouring out a Spirit upon us. And if he isn't, are we more uniform than we are united? And that's a big difference. Sorry, there's a couple of hands. Absolutely. The devil's a great imposter. Yes. Yep. <laughs> You that like so is right to be, to and that's and that's yeah. right on discernment is huge and and that's why I'm hoping that that that's one of the key messages that that's coming out here is that rather than just blindly going into this or following this, and kids are the greatest challenge to that once our kids hit the teenagers and all of a sudden they're starting to think independently and saying. Wait a minute. Why did we do this as a family? Well, because my great grandpa did it that way. Not having a realization of why, and then we have to then search it. And, and, and that's such a, a key component. I don't have too much time left, so I'm gonna scoot on to, because to, I, I wanna definitely, the ending is more important than all of this. Danger signs in unity, and sometimes you, th- how, can it be, how can there be danger in unity? It's unity, we're all together, right? Well, if you have the right definition of unity, maybe, but if your definition is somewhat skewed toward uniformity, there are some danger signs. And so, just quickly what those are. When we restrict unity to a select group or belief or race or whatever it is, Hitler, they were united. The, the country was united. Only to a certain group of people. Everybody else outside of that was not united. There was no, and yeah, it bordered on, there was uniformity all in there and conformity. It was a big mess of everything. But man, were they united behind a certain purpose and behind a certain leader but it was only restricted to them. Anybody outside of their race, forget it. You can't be united. It's impossible for you to be united with us because you are not us. When we enforce or emphasize unity at the expense of examination, discernment, and truth, kind of what we talked about earlier, um, and, and this would be example, uh, an example in the church, would be something where, well, in order for us to implement this new change within the church, we have to be 100% united. If we're not 100% united, then we can't move forward. And so a year goes by, five years go by, 50 years go by. Finally, the handful that didn't agree with it die. Okay, now we're united. Really? I think we've, we've emphasized unity at the expense of truth. And I think that's a real challenge within our church today. That we can't do certain things in the church because, well, we need to have uniformity. We need to all be at peace with this. Not necessarily biblical. We sacrifice obedience for the sake of peace. And unfortunately, this has, has caused a lot of issues within the world, let alone within the church. Simply from a world perspective, when... When in, in the early Britain, when the challenge came against why do we have slaves? And we should free slaves because all men are equal in the sight of God, and some are not less than others because of the color of their skin, there was a real unease that was going on in the society, and there was a huge fight against that for years, until final obedience to God over the will of man, over. The, the unity of of what was then at, at the time. When we stifle spiritual convictions to follow the majority. And again, this this can be this can be applied in, in all sorts of different measures, but but when the Spirit is, is convicting us and, and saying you need to stand up. This is not right. And here's the scripture that says it's not right. But for the sake of unity, for the sake of peace I'm just going to stay quiet because I don't want to ruff, ruffle any feathers. I don't want to shake the boat and do anything that's going to make me stand out different than everybody else. What are we putting our emphasis on? When we confuse non essential unity with true unity, because that can be very tricky too. For example, And again, this isn't a slight against a religion, so maybe I won't pick a religion. When we are united in church order, united in a tradition, united in customs or sacraments or whatever you want to call it, and we look at that and say, look at how united we are. But yet, in true spiritual faith, in doctrine, we're all over the map. We're not united in what is true We're united in what is non-essential. And we focus on the non-essential and say, but look how united we are. Are we really? Or are we just disjointed everywhere and making ourselves look like we're united because we just look at certain parameters? When we refuse to come together with others that are different than us or judge them as less than us, rather than being united together, We say, those people are different. And again, that's within society, within our own families, with each other. That person has a TV in their house. I I can't let my kids go there. Or that person doesn't have a TV in their house. I definitely can't let them go there. We can cut it a, a hundred different ways of how that would be. We're not united with them because somehow they're different than us. But does that make us not united? Or is that united in non-essentials versus non-essentials? Or essentials versus non-essentials? When we avoid or fight against spirit-inspired, Christ-centered, gospel-driven unity within the body of Christ. And I think, I say this with great sadness of heart, that I think we've done a lot of injustice as a church, To that. For the sake of unity, in quotes, very lightly, we have pushed out others that are gospel driven, that are focused on glorifying God, that are spirit inspired to go do something or do things a different way than we are. And because of that, we are no longer united with them. Brothers and sisters, Is that you? Is that me? Is that us? I don't like to call it that, but frankly, that's a sin. That hurts the heart of God more than anything. We We have to really look at ourselves and consider that. So what do we do? What's the solution to all this? If if there's so much opportunity for fallenness in any of these things, what do we do? What's the solution? The solution is another itty word, maturity. Godly, spiritual maturity. And and each of these convey a, a slightly different component to it. There's a a component of taking the gospel into a sin-darkened world. That is our commission. That is our mission. That is our goal. We are Christ to the world. And as that, we all take up our cross, every one of us, and follow our Savior who is carrying his cross. When I first saw that picture, what a phenomenal picture of godly spiritual maturity a bunch of christians side by side carrying the cross following their leader not worried about all the other stuff that's going on following christ as he indicated we are to do getting around the word together to the point where we are the ones that are not just wearing the armor of god and sitting on the mentioned sidelines but have taken up the sword and are entering into the fray to battle the enemy that's maturity a state of full development ability to respond to the environment in an appropriate way in other words being aware of the correct time the correct place to behave and knowing how to act according to the circumstances and the culture this that, that's just in general what the definition of maturity is that's what we're supposed to be striving for for maturity and from a biblical perspective being conformed or transformed is literally what it means into the character and image of God through communion with the indwelling spirit and study of the living word. There's no way to be mature aside from that. That's how we grow. That's how we become mature. We, in, in Scripture, we, we read the aspect of, of 1 Corinthians 3, starts with being fed with milk, the sincere milk of the word. But Apostle Paul saying, I've even wanted to, to do that to you, but but I can't because you're not even able to bear it. You can't even desire, you can't even handle the milk, let alone get to the meat. Encouraging us to, to drive towards maturity. And then in Hebrews 5, 12, it talks about, but strong meat belongs to those who have had their senses exercised to discern between right and wrong. And then in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23, Apostle Paul begins to list, to the Jews I became as a Jew. To the Greeks, to so those who are under the law, as under the law. To the Greeks, as those that, are in, those that are Greek. I am become all things to all men, so that by any means I may save some. That's maturity. And that's what we're called to. And as that relates to those within the church of maturity, when it comes to those that are leaning towards uniformity or conformity or those that are on the other extreme maybe leaning towards diversity or, or have this skewed view of what unity is, what is the responsibility from a maturity standpoint? Apostle Paul says in, in Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8, and 1 Corinthians 10 is, is three chapters that all speak about the, the responsibilities of the strong to the weak and the weak to the strong. And if we could summarize it basically The instructions to the strong are this. Don't be a stumbling block to the weak. Those that are mature, don't be a stumbling block to those that are immature. Instead, take the opportunity to reach out to them in love and inform them, educate them in the scriptures so they can see the truth. Don't flaunt your liberties before them. Walk in love towards them. But yet, we oftentimes just focus on what the responsibilities are, the strong are. But there's a lot of responsibilities to the weak in those passages too that we tend to not focus on and we just let them continue in their weak ways and it's funny because every responsibility to the weak is the same grow you have to grow you can't stay weak you need to grow in the knowledge of the word you need to grow in discernment you need to grow in faith but the same message continues you need to grow it's not acceptable to stay here and for the sake of peace, we'll tolerate you. No, you need to grow. If you're the weak in the church and we're capitulating to you because we need to keep unity, then it's time to grow. You can't stay at the milk level. You need to grow. And formula is not good enough. It needs to be the sincere milk of the word. Not our own ideas of the word. Ooh, I'm almost over. Gave myself a five minute warning. So what's the right combination? Uniformity plus conformity equals tyranny. And we can see that within within the, the, the world. Uniformity plus diversity equals chaos and unrest. Diversity plus conformity is enforced inclusion. And we see that in the, the example of two young people uh, at school. Uniformity plus unity equals a closed community. And a closed community is not what Christ called us to. But unity plus diversity is equal to maturity. And I just want to maybe close with, with the reading of Ephesians 4 because. It encapsulates all of these concepts in one chapter. Verses 1 through 6, talking about unity. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is all above all and through all and in you all. Now diversity. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And now maturity. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect, a mature, complete man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we be no more children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love, may grow up unto him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, maketh increase of the one body unto the edifying of itself in love. That's the picture that God gives for us as the church. And the question that we should always ask ourselves when we get into these discussions of what goes on within our churches and our homes and within our lives, ask ourselves, is it God-driven, Spirit-inspired, God-glorifying, Christ-centered, Gospel-driven? If it is, then all the other aspects have to go away because that's what God is indicating. That has to be first and foremost. So just to conclude... Isaiah 64 says but now O Lord you are our father we are the clay and you are the potter and we are all the work of your hand so what is God trying to make or what is the final product Romans 8:29 says that the final product is conformity to the image of his son it's not us as a vessel he's trying to make it's his son he's trying to make in us He's molding His Son in us. And because each of these terms by themselves that we've talked about, uniformity and conformity and diversity and even unity, can be exploited by mankind and have components that are imperfect by themselves, they're pieces that are unmalleable in the Master's hand and have to be taken out. So that the end product is conformity to Christ and maturity is that perfect blend that allows God to shape us. So the final question, is that you? Is maturity you? And if it isn't, then that gives us our work to do. My very one comment, and that is, I want to go back five times again to be high praise to prayer of our Lord. John. John 17 is filled with it, that we may be one. Just like He is one with the Father. So, so thank you for your comments. They're right on time. Apologize for going to the last minute. Tend to be long-winded. Thank you.